This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Well, they said it wouldn't last, Dr. Jana, but we're back for episode two. Yes, we are. <laughs> I guess we can do it more than once. Okay, that's a loaded <laughs> statement. <laughs> anyway, we got a big show lined up today. What are we going deep on today, Dr. Jana? So, artificial intelligence can determine a person's sexual orientation from photos, a study finds. So, what does this mean for gay people, and what if this technology falls into the wrong hands? We'll go deeper with Dr. Michal Kosinski. And this week in sex science, half of Americans believe robot sex will be common in 50 years. One more time. Robot <laughs> sex will be common in 50 years. Damn. I can't wait to find out more. <laughs> the Science of Sex. Foreplay. Gotta start right out with some sad news. Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine, died of natural causes. He was 91 years old. And a lot of people have, uh, you know, have stomped on his obituary a little bit and also have given him a lot of kudos for what he did for sexual liberation. I mean, if you think about it, when Playboy magazine came around, Stuff like that just didn't exist. I mean, to find a nudie magazine, I'm sure, required having to get on a horse and traveling to some far-off land to get that kind of stuff. But he made it pretty common and was responsible for sexual liberation in a lot of people's eyes. But to some, he was not. He kind of set women back by making them objects. And looking back at some of his earlier work, you could say, boy, women were pretty much treated like meat. In Playboy magazine. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, nothing is ever black or white. And you could argue that to some extent having, you know, naked women on the covers and, and in these in these magazines objectify them to some extent. But, you know, women are being objectified left and right by non-Playboy, you know, magazines and non-nudity magazines, too. Just because they have two additional pieces, tiny little pieces of clothing doesn't necessarily make them, you know, in, in bikini or something selling cars doesn't necessarily make them not objectified. Do you think he was pretty much the, I guess, the catalyst for sexual liberation in this country i mean the timing of it i guess was i mean it was around the 50s where he started and then of course obviously the sexual revolution in the 60s was it just like coincidence or i mean i think he was definitely part of that movement and he helped contribute certainly to making sex available and making sex um you know a sort of a normal thing and something that wasn't as shameful as as it was and a lot of the things that he wrote and that he stood for are very strong feminist issues that i very fully support like you know he was a Pro uh, choice advocate in the Roe v. Wade cases, you know, when the Supreme Court was deciding you know, whether abortion yeah. should be legal in the country. He was a supporter of women's rights to access birth control, marriage equality. Uh, he was a very pro sex education, very pro sex uh, research. All of these things that I think we can all stand behind. So a feminist should not be entirely against Hugh Hefner because it took, I mean, there are a lot of different flavors of feminism yeah. and I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody what they should or should not believe. Yeah. <laughs> but it, you know, in my view, it's it's certainly not black or white that, yes, there there is an argument to be made there about the objectification of, of women and, and taking away, you know, some of their agency when it comes to sexuality and making it more important for women to be sexy for the male gaze as opposed to sexual Right. In terms of being sexual beings themselves. But at the same time, he has contributed um, a lot to all of these other things that are good and positive. And for a lot of men, that was, or boys, I should say, was the first time they got to see girly parts, mm-hmm. you know, the above and below region. And I bring this up because I saw this amazing story where they're saying going commando is healthy for your vagina. <laughs> apparently, I didn't realize that underwear was so dangerous, but apparently, the, the fact that wearing underwear can cause certain things like 
thrush and a, a word something called inflammation and vagina. I mean, all these series of things they're saying. So, they're so, so you're zi- saying these with, it's with a, such it's, disgust. I know, Joe. Well, it's not that bad. Well, just for me, it's, <laughs> when, guys don't want to know about that. <laughs> we we understand that women have a lot of issues that you, uh-huh. you know, your monthly thing you deal with, uh-huh. and then like oh, like having to go to the gynecologist. Guys don't want to know any of that stuff. So when anything like a study like this comes up, and you read it, like you you guys get very uncomfortable. It's like getting kicked in the nuts. It's that kind of like we just don't want to know what's happening. Right, right. Just like you don't want to know that girls, you know, fart or you know, no, go don't. to the bathroom. They, they right, do? Right, right. You know, we don't. We absolutely don't. <laughs> Is that a thing? No, so, that's, that's, that's a male thing. All right, good. Yeah. All right, well, so going commando, they say, is healthy for your vagina. You being a doctor <laughs> with PhD, did, have you ever gone into studies like this? Have you thought about well, this? I'm not that kind of doctor. Oh, My right, PhD is right. in psychology, <laughs> right. not in medical right. uh, science. But there certainly is evidence to suggest that, yeah, going commando is good so the, the vagina can breathe and, and not be kept too moist. Right, and I know a lot of people have this. The word, yeah, the I don't word, like the word moist. Something yeah. with the word, but hey, yeah. it, you know, it, it's a thing. And underwear tend to keep moisture in there, and that is an environment where um, thrush likes yeah. to grow, right? Candida, yeah. um, yeast infections, and also some some forms of vaginitis, which is yes, basically inflammation oh, because of um, even overgrowth. When, even of when you bacteria. say it, it's uncomfortable. It's okay. I know. It's, okay. I know, it really it's all right. Is. But yeah, so you know, going commando, especially in the summer when it's warm, right? Yeah. Under when, especially if you're just wearing a skirt or a dress when you go to sleep they're saying not jeans they say with jeans you should probably wear some underwear there or something like that well jeans are kind of rough and the seams can rub and so it might not be comfortable yeah this is a problem you see you guys have to deal with because us guys we have to wear underwear no you don't no we no no no, you really don't now listen we do because there's there's a there's a zipper down there with sharp teeth you don't want to have you want to have some sort of line of defense so don't wear zippered pants just (laughs) wear button i don't know sometimes buttons i'm sloppy i don't know what to do (laughs) why do you know a lot of guys who don't wear underwear i know a couple really yeah i may have been married to one what? Yeah, and that's per- that, you, that was perfectly normal it. too. Really, yeah, he loves it, and it's wow. such easy access too. That's very dangerous. I'm sorry. No, nothing has. He has had no no incidents <laughs> in I think the four years that he's been doing it. Oh, so it was like a movement he started. Like it was sort of like what's the one? Uh, free the nipple. He he freed the, he freed the wiener or something like that. All right. Well, applications for the support group can be sent to the yes. <laughs> free the wiener. All right. You were talking about your your ex husband, but now there's a this amazing couple that you might be very interested in what they're doing there, Dr. Jana. This couple claims that they can orgasm for 18 straight hours from hugging. Damn. Yeah. I'd like to know. What, it's not a bro hug. Hours. I don't know what kind of hugging, but apparently this, this couple from Los Angeles, they don't even need physical contact because they practice something called Tantra. I don't really know much about Tantra. I know that Sting has done it. He, he's sort of like the poster child for it. But this couple says they don't even have to see each other to achieve climax. Which sounds amazing, but they say we can even feel each other when we're apart. We can orgasm all by ourselves just through breathing, and Tantra teaches us to be conscious about it. Yeah, wow. 18 hours. That's a, that's a very long orgasm. Gee. They say 18 hours. Do you think they're just being braggadocious about it? <laughs> that maybe it's like only like eight minutes and they say 18 hours? 18 hours sounds like, I mean, don't you have a job? Like, I wouldn't be, I'd have to call out sick. I mean, I guess you could do it on the, on the weekend, you know, on a day off. I guess. And then, oh, by the way, this couple, I will say, I mean, just reading about Tantra, it sounds like it's perfect for couples who hate each other because basically you don't have to be around because you could just like be thinking about like, hey, Sally, I'm I, I'm feeling it. Are you feeling it? 
I guess, you know, I, I think I, it would be very hard if you hate each other to actually get to that point of being able to orgasm sort of together for 18 hours. But I mean, this, you know, this is interesting. We, we hear and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and stories from people practicing Tantra and experiencing these kind of different and unique and sometimes uh, supposedly more intense and longer kinds of uh, sexual experiences and orgasms. The sad thing about Tantra is we have virtually no scientific evidence on that practice. So I don't really have much to say about it from a scientific perspective. Really? That's interesting yeah, to me. I like know. You think if there was someone out there who found a way to have 18-hour orgasms, that scientists around the block would be <laughs> like, well, how do we do this? Let's get some studies going. Mm-hmm. Like, no, there wasn't a Kinsey study or anything like that about Tantra? No, not- That's shocking to me. Can you do one? <laughs> I, I mean, you work at NYU. Can you put together a study about Tantra to prove it? Because to me, it sounds like a lot of hooey. Like, it sounds like, like, a, mm-hmm. like a placebo. Like, people are tricked into thinking, oh my God, this orgasm is better because I'm looking into oh. my partner's eyes and we're breathing. I mean, there's stuff. certainly, those aspects of it certainly can contribute, right? You know, breathing and being aware and kind of, you know, being in this sort of meditative state, you know, all of those things can lead to greater awareness and greater attentiveness and, you know, an, an intensification of whatever it is you're feeling, presumably. But we need to test this. So it's not going to be me. Sorry <laughs> right. to disappoint. Okay. That's not quite my area all of right, expertise sure. or research. I mean, Actually, to be completely honest, I've never done Tantra, wow. which is kind of surprising, but that's going to change. I'm going to a Tantric weekend getaway in a couple of weeks, wow. so I'm going to give it a try for the first time. Look at you sacrificing yourself for science. I know. You, it's going to be rough. <laughs> you yeah. are a regular John Salk right here. <laughs> the Science of Sex Goes Deeper. A new study published in one of the top psychology journals, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, found that artificial intelligence can accurately guess whether people are gay or straight based on photographs of their faces, and that this machine's gaydar is significantly better than that of humans. So basically, a deep neural network was used to extract features from the facial images of over 35,000 men and women they had submitted to a dating website, and to learn which facial features correlated with people's orientation, self-identified orientation as gay or straight, based on who they were looking to date on that site. Then, these features extracted by the algorithm were entered in a statistical model to predict people's self-reported sexual orientation. The model correctly distinguished between gay and straight men 81% of the time and 74% of the time for women. When you compare this to human judges, their accuracy levels are only slightly above chance at 61% of the time for men and 54% of the time for female faces. And this was all based on a single photo per person. If the algorithm was shown five images per person, it was even more successful. So 91% of the time for men and 83% of the time for female faces, it got right. So this raises all sorts of questions about the exact cues that indicate sexual orientation in our faces, what is causing these facial differences, and also what the potential uses and misuses of such an algorithm could be. These are some of the reasons the study was denounced by many LGBT rights organizations and even halted for publication by the journal until additional investigation was completed which is highly unusual. So here with us today to talk about all of this is Dr. Michal Kosinski, one of the two researchers of the study, and he's an assistant professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He's been 
a rising star in psychology research, making quite the name for himself in analysis of big data relevant to psychology, like analyzing thousands of Facebook profiles to find that, for example, birds of a feather do flock together when it comes to personality traits, or that facial width to height ratio does not predict antisocial or violent tendencies like some small data-based studies have found, or that women are warmer but no less assertive than men in their language on Facebook. Dr. Michal Kosinski, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's first clarify some of the factual issues and misconceptions that people have about the study, and then we can discuss some of the more moral dilemmas uh, around that. Sure. Well, first of all, um, what is a deep neural network? I think a lot of people are kind of struggling to understand what this thing is that you used. A deep neural network is basically a very large uh, neural network, neural network with uh, many uh, layers. It's one of the most basic tools that is now being used in the field of artificial intelligence to try to understand the data and predict the future. Wow, that sounds ominous. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean predict the future? What do you mean by that? It turns out that uh, whenever we use computers to make decisions or predict the future, they seem to be more accurate than uh, whatever humans uh, can achieve. But at the end of the day, what we're actually doing when we build neural networks, we kind of try to reverse engineer how the brain works, how the human or animal uh, brain works. And those networks that we're building using computers are much simpler, of course, than what nature developed in uh, our heads. But those networks also have some advantages over human-based networks, our brains. And one of the advantages is that those computer-based neural networks, they can analyze and see through much more data than an average human would be able to access and uh, perceive and interpret. And this basically means that even a simpler thinking mechanism, an artificial neural network, can often outcompete a much more complicated uh, biological network that we have in our head. Yeah, that's a little scary. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that uh, IBM Watson, right? Is that pretty much a, a version of that? <laughs> well, it's one of the examples, and we also know that other neural networks are outcompeting people when it comes to games. Yeah. Now, soon enough, uh, those networks will be driving our cars with much better mm. performance not only much faster, but also much safer than whatever humans uh, could achieve. And we also see those neural networks being used to diagnose disease, choose the right treatment in medical context, or predict uh, the future changes in the stock market. This is great potential positive uses. Well, also yeah. negative, because, Doctor, I'm sure you've seen the Terminator movies, and that didn't end well <laughs> with artificial intelligence and Skynet and okay, all that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let's come back to this study. Can you tell us about the particular DNN deep neural network that you used here? here and also other facial software, like what are we talking about? One of the things that we became concerned in recent years with is that computer algorithms got much better ability recently to analyze visual data. And one thing that we're concerned with uh, based on our interactions with startups around here, uh, technology companies, and also press reports was that those startups and governments are increasingly using computer vision technology to predict people's intimate uh, traits, such as their uh, personality or likelihood uh, to commit crime or their emotions. And of course, 
companies and governments would not really boast much about what they're doing. Keeping those things quiet ascertains that they can basically go on and uh, do things Keep that otherwise <laughs> uh, perhaps would really upset uh, uh, people. So we've decided to examine whether widely used facial recognition technologies have potential to reveal intimate, sensitive traits that we strongly believe people should be able to keep private. So what we've done, we've taken openly available, quite old in fact, a facial recognition algorithm, facial recognition deep neural network. And this network originally was trained to identify the same person across many different images. So what essentially this network is doing, it is taking a picture of a face and turning it into thousands of numbers, 4,096 numbers to be exact. And now the original use of this network is to compare those numbers between the pictures. And if those numbers are close to each other or similar, then one can conclude that it's very likely that there's the same person represented on uh, those two images. And we know for sure that this technology is being widely used at the airports, at the CCTV networks, and also, you know, increasingly in our everyday devices, like in iPhone 10, uh, that can basically look at your face and recognize whether uh, it's you. But what we suspected is that the same numbers can be also used to distinguish between people that have different intimate sensitive traits. So essentially what we've done in our study, we run few thousand people through this facial recognition software. And we didn't design this software, we just took an off-the-shelf thing that is being widely used already. And we ran a few thousand gay and straight people through this software, and we have shown that those numbers produced for straight people and for gay people are slightly different. Now, the difference is not very large, but it's large enough for a computer algorithm to be able to distinguish between gay and straight faces. So, Doctor, you pretty much created a baseline So you fed the computer, these are gay faces and these are straight faces, and then going forward, you compare other faces, correct? That's correct. We did not develop anything new. We just used an existing technology and exposed the privacy risks that are inherent in it. Basically, the sexual orientation of the the faces was uh, deduced based on the gender of the person that the person of that profile on the dating site was looking for, correct? That's correct. So in this case, we um, looked at self-reported sexual orientation. And of course, it's not a perfect uh, approach. And uh, there are many ways in which you could go about defining uh, sexual orientation. And of course, there is a broad range of different sexual orientations. But at the end of the day, in our data set, we're limited to those two groups of people who said that they were interested in dating others of the same gender and people who said that they were interested in dating others of a different gender. In the dating um, site that, that you used, was there an option of both? There was an option of both, but the group of people who uh, declared so uh, was so small that we basically could not include them in the analysis. Okay, so these were people who only said they were interested in dating men versus women. Basically, the group of people who declared that they were interested in dating uh, both men and women was, in our data, it was so small that we could not really uh, run any analysis with, uh, uh, with this data. So a lot of people 
seem to be under the impression that you fed the algorithm facial criteria that you thought, as researchers, should define gay versus straight faces, and that that has pre-programmed the, the algorithm with some biased assumptions about what gays versus straights look like. But that's not the case, is it? Absolutely not. So many people accuse us of Uh, somehow trying to scientifically test the stereotypes that uh, people have about gay and straight uh, individuals, and this is absolutely not the case. We just fed the algorithm with few thousand straight and gay faces without giving any hints to an algorithm what it may want to look for. And also many people misinterpret our study as a study of the origins of the sex orientation or nature of the sex orientation. And I want to stress that our study has absolutely not been designed to test those issues. There are much better designs to test uh, those things. And in fact, there's a very broad literature examining those issues. In our study, we just wanted to answer the question whether AI algorithms that are already widely used by companies and governments can potentially use to reveal people's intimate traits in this from case, their faces, sexual right, orientation right. from their faces. And of course, what we have noticed when we're looking at the feature that the algorithm has been using to distinguish between straight and gay individuals. So when we looked a bit more closely at those features, those features seem to be consistent with existing theories of the origins of sexual orientation. So actually, now, let's talk about some of these cues. Like, what were the exact cues that distinguished straight from gay faces for men and for women that were extracted by your algorithm? We spotted few dozens of, of cues that uh, were used by the algorithm. At the end of the day, one has to stress that those algorithms are so-called black box algorithms. So we do not exactly know what's happening inside. It's basically too complicated for a human brain to analyze. But then we can use certain techniques to try to approximate what's happening inside. So for instance, we can ask the algorithm to give us you know, 100 examples of faces that look most gay or most straight mm -hmm. to the algorithm. And then we can just look at those faces and try to figure out what are the differences. We can also check which parts of the face the algorithm is focusing on, and then from that deduct what facial features seem to be most important for an algorithm when deciding whether a person was gay or straight. Now, so what's, overall, so what's what, doctor, so what's one of those, like, pointy nose, ear <laughs> yeah, angles? Yeah, yeah, he's like, getting there, he's getting there. So, what, I know he's getting what there. Is there <laughs> what, what, do you, what is the algorithm reading there? Is, like, is there something on the face that, like, I know you said there's 12 of them, but, like, give us one example, what, what no, one no, part no, of I the face? I want all of them, you, well, <laughs> I want all of them. <laughs> so it seems that the algorithm would focus both on morphological differences between faces and also on differences in grooming or style. So algorithm would look at the shape of the jaw and the shape of the nose and the shape of other facial features, but it would also look at whether you are shaven or not. It would look at whether you wear glasses or not. It would look at your facial expression, whether you're kind of smiling on your picture or keep uh, a serious expression. And the combination of all of those traits enabled algorithm to make the predictions it was making. And now when you look more closely at those differences between straight and gay faces, what you consistently see is that gay individuals tend to have gender nonconformist or gender atypical uh, facial features, both fixed and morphological features, but also features such as grooming or style or facial expression. So for instance, we know, that's a well-established fact, that women tend to smile slightly more 
on their pictures than, than men, men do. do. Mm-hmm. And now when you look at lesbian women, they smile slightly less than straight women. And when you look at gay men, they smile slightly more than straight men, which mm-hmm. indicates that facial expression that we adopt on our images tend to be gender atypical if you're gay. Now, the same relates to other features, such as shape of the jaw. We know that men tend to have broader jaws than women. And again, exactly the same thing happened as with facial expression when it comes to gay men and lesbians. The shape of the jaw was gender atypical, was slightly closer to the other gender than in a typical man or typical woman. And then the same applies to a very broad range of other factors, such as the tone of your uh, skin, such as uh, the shape of your nose, even uh, kind of additional things that people do to their face, like baseball caps. Baseball Mm -hmm. caps in American culture are associated with usually worn by men. Mm -hmm. Not always, but there's a tendency uh, in the data that men tend to wear baseball caps a bit more often. And guess what? Straight men wear baseball caps slightly more often than gay men, Hmm. and lesbian uh, women wear baseball caps slightly more often than straight women. And if I can um, summarize some of these uh, findings that you had in the data, that gay men had narrower jaws, longer noses, larger foreheads, less facial hair, lighter skin, and less likelihood of wearing baseball hats than Mm -hmm. did straight men. And for lesbians, the DNN found that larger jaws less eye makeup, darker hair, less revealing clothing, less smiling, and more likely to wear baseball hats. And all of those features are basically pointing towards gender atypicality of uh, gay men and women, which, by the way, is not controversial. It's not new. There have been dozens and dozens of studies that have shown it before. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's It shouldn't be surprising to anyone because when you look at gay men and gay women, one gender atypical thing that they share is their sexual preference. And it seems that basically from that, other things follow. In the paper, you say that these findings suggest that strong support for the prenatal hormone exposure theory of sexual orientation or non-heterosexuality, which is basically that non-heterosexual orientation stems from, at least partly, from exposure to gender atypical levels of hormones before birth, so in, in the womb. That is lower in gay men than straight men and higher in lesbian women than straight women. Can you maybe talk a little bit about some of these cues that were found by the DNN as distinguishing between gays and straights and how much of those we can be certain were you know, driven by exposure to androgens versus socialization or subcultural norms that don't necessarily have to do with biology and prenatal hormone exposure? First of all, I would like to stress that our study was not aimed at proving prenatal hormone theory. Right. It's just that our study's results were consistent with this theory, which again doesn't lend support necessarily to the PhD, prenatal hormone theory, but it lends support to our study. It basically Mm -hmm. means that our results are not unexpected or are not in the vacuum. We were talking about our findings being consistent with this theory. Again, we didn't try to prove this theory or anything of this kind. And people often focus on Uh, discussing the differences between nature and nurture and differences between the style and how we groom our face and whether Mm -hmm. we grow a beard and also uh, morphological things that are fixed. But from the scientific point of view, from the biological point of view, the difference is very often very blurry. Are you shaving your face because this is a style 
or maybe you're shaving your face because your facial hair is slightly less dense. So to bring it back to some of the facial cues, some of these may be more clearly determined by prenatal exposure, like the narrower jaws or the you know the other morphological, more fixed features, whereas some of the other ones are probably a mix of both nature and nurture, and then some, you know, like the no baseball hats, that's mm. a very cultural thing, right? It would yeah. be kind of hard to argue that. There's well, some... what about baldness? Of course, if you have a lot of testosterone, you might start losing hair, and then maybe you're more likely to start wearing baseball hats. Right, but you could be wearing different types of hats. The, the, sure. the, the type of the hat being worn, that in and of itself is sort of a... Yeah, like that's a fedora. Absolutely they, true. Fedora? That's absolutely no. true. Yeah. <laughs> Though in America, you don't really wear any other hats than, than <laughs> that's baseball true. hats. A cowboy hat, maybe. <laughs> A cowboy hat. Hey, doctor, uh, there was an adverb you were leaning on earlier when we were talking about all the points of the face. You used the word slightly a lot. How slightly are are we talking about here? I know slightly means a very small amount, but is is it so small a margin for error that it could go either way? It's uh, so small that it's basically cannot be perceived by humans or can be perceived but cannot be interpreted. So the difference is so tiny that even people who are very highly exposed to gay community, members of the gay community, they cannot very easily distinguish between gay and straight people just based on their faces. We know that these are curiosity of humans, even humans that are in the community, and hence one could argue that have a lot of training data because they were exposed to many straight and gay people in their lives. And even such people, their accuracy would be slightly higher than random. One reassuring result of this study is that humans basically cannot uh, reliably judge other people's uh, sexual orientation. Wait, what and about now, gaydar? Isn't that a, that's not a thing? That doesn't work? Well, at least uh, based on faces. Based on faces, okay. Based on faces. Now, interestingly, all of those other, uh, all of those other aspects mm-hmm. of how we go about ourselves, our voice, our moves and whatnot, whenever uh, scientists examine those uh, features, it turns out that basically uh, they usually tend to be gender atypical. And this is, this is actually how gaydar works, that we look oh. basically for gender atypical typicality of others. Which kind of goes back to the, you know, it's all consistent with some atypical levels of prenatal exposure. Or other unknown mechanisms, because of course we are far away from fully understanding the process. But again, the fact that we do not understand the differences, the origins of the differences between gay and straight faces does not mean that we cannot show that a computer can reliably distinguish between them. Now, these were photos that people had uploaded on a dating site, and some critics have suggested that dating sites are a place where gay and straight folks might have chosen different types of pics to present themselves, or pics that are particularly revealing of sexual orientation, or pics of different quality, and that instead you should use neutral uh, expression and standardized lab-based photos for, for a study like this. How did your studies address this, and you know, what's your take on that? Well, I fully agree with the critics. Uh, of course, we should have used your DMV picture stored by the government, yeah. but we just don't have access uh, <laughs> to this data, and I don't think it will be ethical to, uh, for us to access this data. Again, if you're a company or a startup, you probably have access to this data, and you don't have to worry about ethical norms uh, much, so you can train uh, such models. So. We were basically limited to this type of data, and we took steps to try to make sure that it's not more revealing of sexual orientation than other images. And we used few approaches. So first of all, we showed those images to humans as well. And we found that human judges could not guess your sexual orientation more accurately than in the case of those pictures taken in a highly controlled 
lab environments that those basic studies have been done in the past where kind of passport-like pictures were shown to people and accuracy of people in our study was exactly the same as in those past studies, showing that dating website images were not more revealing of sexual orientation, at least to human judges. Now, we also took images from Facebook. We had around 1,000 gay volunteers that gave us their Facebook profile image. Well, we just got their profile image from Facebook. And we have shown that the algorithm used in this study cannot distinguish between a gay person from Facebook and a gay uh, person's image from dating websites, suggesting images that we use in the kind of non-dating social network are no different from images that we use in a dating website environment. And finally, uh, I would just go back to the character of the features that the algorithm is picking on. It seems that because those features are consistent with the theory, it's not that we are just picking on some differences characteristic to a dating website. It's yes, yet another factor that suggests that those might be universal differences pertaining to all sorts of contexts in which the picture could have been taken. About humans being so much worse at this task, uh, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but do you think this is primarily due to us failing to perceive these cues that the computer can, can perceive? So is it a detection thing, or are we just terrible at interpreting the collection of cues that we do perceive accurately? I think it's uh, both. It might be that a computer can spot things on our face that human brain is basically just not focusing on, because in our evolution it has been shaped to focus on other aspects uh, of our face. So this might be the first reason. But the second reason is that uh, perhaps even if we perceive a given feature of someone's face, maybe we cannot really interpret it. And this is not unusual, actually, the, the kind of this phenomenon that computers can interpret data more accurately than we can is not just limited to making the predictions from uh, faces. So basically, humans are great at extrapolating from clear type of a signal. So if you can see someone has a, a beard, then, you know, we are really great at guessing, okay, this person must be a male, or it's just very likely that this person is a male. But then when you can see like little wrinkles somewhere around the eye or some small tiny difference in the length or the shape of the nose, this wouldn't be revealing to you because you basically would need to analyze in detail thousands of images of gay and straight individuals to spot this little tiny subtle right. difference in this particular feature. So for a human brain, even if you perceive a difference in someone's uh, shape of their nose or shape of the jaw, uh, this basically wouldn't be as revealing as it potentially could be to an algorithm. So do you think that with, because, you know, one of the criticisms was that, well, this was a trained algorithm, whereas the humans didn't receive any specific training. Do you think that with training we could get to perceive and interpret these facial cues at a higher level of accuracy? Well, that's an interesting question. Again, this is not the question that is most exciting to us in this context because, well, right. humans yes. could be even more accurate than yeah. just it means that we even have more problems right. uh, <laughs> in the society uh, than just AI being able to do it. But in fact, I my intuition would be that even if we trained humans to do it, they would not achieve much higher accuracy. And the evidence of that is that gay people who arguably are vitally interested in being able to predict other people's sexual orientation and also they are exposed to tens or hundreds of gay people in their community, uh, in their uh, social networks, yet their accuracy is not much higher 
than non-gay people who uh, probably pay much less attention and are also much less interested in distinguishing between straight and gay people. Right. Now, this level of accuracy for the algorithm, the really high, you know, 80, 90 percent, uh, was when the computer is asked to choose between two photos where one person is for certain gay and the other one is straight. How would that algorithm perform when applied to a more realistic population in which the percentage of gay people is something more like, you know, six or seven rather than 50, 50 percent? Well, it very much depends on what do you want to use this algorithm for. If you want to use this algorithm to identify few certain cases, you may say. So if you take, let's say, 1,000 people or 100,000 people and you say, okay, algorithm, just give me, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 gay people. Now, in such case, when we look at the, just a small group of people where we just ask algorithms for its surest, kind of for the bets where the algorithm is the, at its most certain, then the accuracy will be really high, close to 100%. Uh, percent. Now, if you want to use an algorithm to find every single gay individual in this population, then, of course, you would have many false positives and many false negatives. Now, one has to add to it that even the least accurate algorithm that is better than random is already a great threat to the safety and well-being of gay community, and also it's a great advantage to uh, mischievous agents that uh, institutions or governments, uh, they may want to basically out people against their will. Right. So, okay, let's let's talk about that Get a there. little bit, right? That's sort of the big moral dilemma and also the reason why you got yourself in trouble <laughs> with with the study uh, with a lot of people right so there are potential serious misuses you know from from the from the less serious like you know teenagers using it on themselves or their friends or or maybe spouses trying yeah. to use it a, a, against their their spouse to see oh maybe maybe they're gay or something to corporations and government using it to discriminate or persecute lgbt folks so oh, what's your take? Well, this is my motivation for working on this, pro on this project. Oh, so you're doing it so no one else has the ability to do it? Well, I'm doing it because people the have the ability to do it. And I'm, but as you could see in last weeks, uh, both general public and policymakers were not aware that uh, computer vision algorithms have a potential to be so threatening when it comes to privacy. Now, Worry not. Secret services and startups are very well aware of the potential of this technology. And you just don't need to go far. Just go to Google and see how many announcements there are of governments starting to use facial recognition technology to reveal intimate traits of people, of startups boasting about being able to do exactly that. And once we have noticed that this technology is basically already being used in this way, after trying to convince some policymakers and fellow scholars that this is a real risk and being met with, well, ignorance and uh, lack of belief that this is possible, we have decided to basically show what those companies and those governments are able to do at the moment. I completely understand that if you believe that this technology is unknown and no one knew that it's possible to predict sexual orientation from uh, people's faces, then, of course, it's highly irresponsible to share those results with everyone. And in fact, we waited for a year after we had our results uh, ready for publication before we decided to release them. And the decision was driven by the fact 
that we became increasingly aware, both from our personal communication with people in the industry, but also based on the press reports on uh, how countries such as China or Russia are using these technologies already today, that we have decided that, that, that we basically cannot wait any longer and we must uh, sound an urgent warning. Right. So you're basically warning us of what can happen and, and forcing our society to find ways to deal with this and prevent terrible things from happening, right? Well, I think I'm not warning you against something that may happen. I'm warning you against something that is already happening at the moment. Hmm. So if somebody hacked you, they wouldn't get an edge because this is, like you said, exists. Because you hear about the word hacking. everyone. So if someone were to hack into your computers and find this study and get the, the deep nuts of what you guys did, it wouldn't help them any more than if they just got facial recognition from somewhere else, right? Absolutely not. We use just an open source software that anyone can uh, download. And we also used openly available, publicly available pictures of gay and straight individuals. Okay. which are also very easily obtainable. Any you know, kid with one year of experience in computer science can basically build an algorithm of this kind in hours, most likely. Uh, we spend, obviously, much longer time because we wanted to test it in many different ways and make sure that it really works and, and it's not just some kind of a, a spurious correlation that we are observing. And we have to realize that in many countries around the world, sexual orientation, non-heterosexual sexual orientation, is treated as a crime and very often is punished with a capital offense. So we basically have to act now. So, doctor, you're saying this is almost a warning for us. So what can we do to stop it from harming people? Well, there are many actions that we can take immediately, like uh, give people more control over their data, uh, like uh, ascertaining that uh, our profile pictures are not publicly available online as they currently are on platforms such as Facebook or LinkedIn, where anyone from anywhere in the world can access anyone else's uh, profile image. But I think that it's important to realize that going forward in the long, longer term, it might be impossible to make sure that uh, we are able to keep our intimate uh, traits private. Basically, the logic of progress is such that algorithms are getting better at uh, revealing our intimate traits from our digital footprints, and we are giving an increasing amount of digital footprints uh, behind. And even if we somehow, magically, were able to give people technology or laws allowing them to fully control the data, well, there's still a lot that we want to share. I want to share my tweets with the world. I want to share my blog posts with the world. I do not want to cover my face uh, while walking the streets in my neighborhood. Right. And this is already enough data for even a simple algorithm to reveal, expose my very sensitive traits. So basically going forward, it might be that we'll have to accept the future and start to plan for the future where the privacy is gone. <laughs> so there's also another thing that kind of bothers me. There's a bit of a logical inconsistency with some of this criticism. So much of the LGBT activist criticism was not only due to this potential for misuse of the algorithm, but it was also denouncing the study as junk science, basically refusing the implications that facial features can indicate sexual orientation uh, and that that might have some biological basis. Yet at the same time, LGBT activism has, has been really helped by uh, the argument that sexual orientation is biological and LGBT activists very often are pretty happy to accept those kinds of explanations of, of sexual orientation. It's, a, it's like they want to have their cake and eat it too. 
Well, that's a great point. And historically, that's true that one of the main differences between people who were pro, let's say, marriage equality and pro-gay rights versus people who were in the homophobic camp was that the latter, the homophobes, were insisting that sexuality, sexual orientation is just a choice. But I think what happened is that as the tolerance uh, grew in recent years, and obviously the situation is not yet perfect, but it's pretty clear that situation of LGBT community today is much better than it used to be 10, mm -hmm. 20, or 30 years ago. I think what happened is that the importance of these arguments decreased. And now what happens is that liberal people liberal part of the of the political spectrum which also happened to be most pro tolerance and pro gay rights but also liberal people strongly believe in the full rights or full ability of people to self determine you know people with some very liberal thinkers would even argue that things like gender are entirely socially constructed, constructed and mm -hmm. there's absolutely nothing inherent uh, in our gender well, if you start from this position, then of course, any thought uh, or any suggestion that your gender or sexual orientation might be to some extent inherent or to some extent biologically based must be upsetting. The controversy that ensued after the pre-publication um, of, of the study in JPSP led the journal to kind of pause publishing of the paper so they can do some additional investigation into the ethics of the paper. And this is highly unusual in the, the research publishing process, right? Uh, what's the status? of this and, and what's your take on that? Oh, that was resolved in uh, 12 hours, uh, literally. The journal requested uh, the additional documents. Well, they basically asked to share with them the um, approval letter from uh, Stanford's uh, internal review board. And also they asked us for the application that we filed with the IRB. And they concluded after a few hours of looking at it that there's absolutely no issue with the study. What I believe happened I don't really know what happened, but what I believe has happened is that, you know, some people just called the journal and uh, perhaps made up some accusations uh, uh, against uh, the paper. Well, but again, actually, I don't really want to talk about it much in a public uh, sphere because it's pretty clear that the journal made a mistake and uh, they admitted to it and, uh, well, maybe not apologized outright, <laughs> but acknowledged that this was an issue. So it just doesn't make sense to kind of rub it in. I would like to publish <laughs> in this journal in the future. Yes, it's a it's a great, amazing journal. But in, in, so in line with some of this kind of um, things happening were calls for Stanford to distance itself from the study. And we've seen over the year, over the last few years, universities being increasingly under pressure to distance themselves from controversial research. Just last week on the show, we talked about a case where Bath Spa University wouldn't let a grad student study regret in gender reassignment surgeries because it was bad for their PR, because it was, it was politically incorrect. How did Stanford handle this? I received a lot of support from Stanford, both before the publication of the study and uh, afterwards. Um, I'm... Um, this definitely does not happen at Stanford. So Stanford is very committed to making sure that uh, science and the quality of science is not affected by PR or, um, or other issues not related to scientific integrity and the accuracy of the results. And uh, there was absolutely no signs here of uh, any wavering support for my research and uh, me personally.
Yay, Stanford. (laughs) But, Doctor, you can understand the blowback, right? Because even people, you know, most people, they'll read the first two, three lines that describe the study, and that's all they react upon. They're like, what? This actual technology exists? You can kind of see where it's coming from, right? I completely agree with that. And this is also why I completely uh, understand why people might be upset. Look, first of all, I was also upset by those results. Me being upset by those results is one of the main reasons why I've decided to go on and uh, warn the others. Now, also I understand that journalists working on a news cycle, when they only have, you know, 15 or 20 minutes to basically repost an article on their own website, they will not have time to go and read, you know, 30 plus pages of uh, our manuscript. While the first newspapers, first outlets that covered our study, such as The Economist, They carefully considered the study, they carefully read it, they looked at the motivation that was behind it and wrote what I uh, believe was a fairly complete and accurate representation of our findings and were fair in judging uh, the uh, quality and outcomes of the study. And the next wave of news coverage, which very often, you know, happened hours after the publication of uh, of the first uh, press uh, news. It's the mainstream or, coverage you get from the New York Post of the World and the Daily Mails that take the four, four or five lines from it, make it a story, put a picture on it, and, pl- and slap it on the Internet, right? Precisely, without mm-hmm. really reading the mm-hmm. without reading the source uh, materials. And the same, in fact, uh, happens with people who are commenting on it. I received a lot of negative emails from people. I received death threats, and each Damn. time I tried to respond and actually uh, ask people whether they had a chance to read the study. Oh, you went back at all the negative comments you got? Oh, of course. You know, it's my role as a scientist to make sure that uh, people understand the science as much as uh, possible. And I also understood that people who were upset, they were, you know, well-meaning. Did you spend almost as much time responding to comments as you did writing up the study? (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, actually very likely. I spent last few weeks most of the time trying to explain the results to people, both to individuals, but also to journalists and uh, other scholars to make sure that uh, the results are presented in, in as reliable way as possible. So, so, Dr. Ballpark, how many responses do you think you wrote in the past <laughs> week or so? Just, cu- just, I'm just really curious. Probably a few hundred. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's a lot of comments. Okay, um, the last thing I wanted to ask is, moving away from from the study itself, but your thing, you know, in in your research has been mining big data to understand personality and predict real-life choices. Can you just speak a little more broadly about how big data differs from small data and specifically the value of big data for psychological research? Big data gives us much larger resolution. We can spot patterns of behavior or patterns of thought that are basically not visible in small data. Also, looking at big data generated in the digital space or through digital devices gives us an ability to look at people in their natural environment. So traditionally, psychology was based on survey research where we just ask people to self-report on their behavior or uh, on laboratory-based research when we would put people in those artificial spaces and observe them interacting or behaving uh, uh, in such space. And of course, while uh, we made a lot of progress using those methods, those methods also have serious limitations, like people misrepresent what they do when they answer to surveys and questionnaires. And of course, people are not behaving in a natural way when they are in the lab. Now, being able to tap into the data that is generated through your smartphone or 
while you're searching for things online or while you're interacting and socializing with people on social networks. This gives us social scientists an ability to basically observe people in their natural environments when they are not aware or not thinking too much about being observed. And of course, in the case of social scientists, this data has to be collected in an ethical way. And in my case, I would to the large extent rely on data that has been donated to me by the volunteers. But again, instead of having volunteers participate in the study and then observing their behavior from the moment they volunteer into the future, I would usually use retrospective data. I would have people volunteer the data that they generated in the past, which removes another source of bias in social sciences, which is the fact that participating in the study usually changes people's behavior. So cool. So cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here, and I'm sure we'll have you back in the podcast uh, some other time in the next study that you publish. Zana, Joe, thanks a lot for uh, for your time, and uh, please let me know if I could help with anything. Thanks, Doc. Take care. Amazing. Have a good day. Bye-bye. This Week in Sex Science. Half of Americans say that in the year 2067, robot sex will be common. <laughs> that doesn't sound very common right now, but you know what? <laughs> 50 years, things could change, but they're saying that in 50 years, they asked over a 1,000 adults whether they will do robot sex, and they say, yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance of it. Now, here's the, here's where the battle of sexes weighs in, Dr. Jana. 24% of men said they consider sex with a robot if it were possible. That's a little more than the 9% of women. 9% of women would have sex with a robot. What's up with these women? <laughs> they don't want to try a, a good sexy robot? Well, I guess a robot is not nearly as sexy to women as it is to men. And you could argue that this has a lot of different reasons for why that's the case. On one hand, you know, uh, women just in general have lower drive for sexual novelty okay. or curiosity than, than men do. Perhaps somewhat due to biological reasons, also somewhat due to you know, socialization re- reasons. We tell women they shouldn't be very sexually curious and, and don't really encourage them to try new sexual things and that kind of stuff. On the other hand, probably... Uh, Partially, this has to do with the intimacy component. You know, you are less likely oh, to expect right. to get from I, a robot. Here we go. Now, I, I get you. Men are not as emotional as women when it comes to sex. Is that what you're going to say? Are you going to say that? Are you going to throw uh, well, it Well, I mean, on average, <laughs> women are more drawn to the intimacy aspects of sex than, than men are. Or men are capable of enjoying sex with less intimacy, intimacy. Right. more more often okay. than I'll, women are. And these better. are all averages. These are all averages. <laughs> You know, doesn't mean that all women are like that or all men are like that. But right. you know, on average, there are some gender differences in that regard. Well, think about it. We've already seen these sex robots already. Mm-hmm. Like in Japan, they've got them all mm-hmm. over the place. And you could order online. You could get anything mm-hmm. online, but you get them. And they look kind of normalish. But think about it. In 50 years, how far the technology will go? come, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in 50 years, they might look almost human and feel almost human. So I guess that all depends. I, I think how how much sex with robots we're going to see depends on how realistic these these robots are. Will it be so common where people are like, hey, uh, I had sex with a robot last, last night. night. You know, like, like <laughs> I guess that's what probably they're seeing. All right, so let's put ourselves under this microscope. We'll be part of this study. We're one of the 1,146 adults that did well, this. I don't know. You know, we're going to be alive in 2067, maybe. Uh, maybe. There's, a pr- there's a pretty good chance I won't. You you might. Uh, all right, so I get a robot for you that looks like Ryan Gosling. He's going to come in here. He'll tap dance in, play a little Ryan piano. Gosling. 
Ryan Gosling, not quite my style, oh, but I geez. mean, wouldn't necessarily say no, but that wouldn't be my. Go-to. All right, give me an actor who who you want. What, well, I'll work on the robot. Which one? What do you like? You like a? Uh, I don't know the uh, you know Brad Pitt. Uh, okay, a, a, a decade ago. Okay, so uh, early two thousands, Brad Pitt walks <laughs> in here, robot version. Would you have any problems? Making love to uh, early 2000s robot Brad Pitt. I could definitely have a problem making love because I doubt I will be in love with okay. uh, that robot, but I would totally have sex with him. Totally. Absolutely, totally, 100%. <laughs> right, that's good. <laughs> would you? Uh, well, <laughs> well, not, who's not, your, not, not, not Brad, Brad Pitt. Pitt. <laughs> not Brad Pitt. Uh, you know, I would say someone like who's a little adventurous, I, I like maybe someone like a, a Katy Perry okay, or somebody Perry. like that who'd, who has a little personality, so maybe they could in- interject some personality into the robot. Because, okay. you know what, You know, I don't want you to like have this blanket thing about men who have, they don't like they don't need intimacy don't or anything like that. don't have a blanket thing. Well, it's I just know, average. average. <laughs> you sound like the averages. But you know how they say that, but... I'd like the robot to be able to chat a little bit mm-hmm. because you know, I have to, you know, be able. To, it's sort of like having sex with Alexa. Do you have one of those Echo apps and, and you ask <laughs> yeah. like the weather? I'd like to be able, like once we've had sex, be like, "What's the score at the Met game?" You know, I'd like to be able okay. to do that and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I, hey, listen, if it's going to be acceptable in fifty years, and God willing, I'm alive, and mm-hmm. maybe that's the only thing I'll be able to have sex with in fifty years, <laughs> then hell yeah, then hell yeah. <laughs> I love that that we're a bit of a reverse of the gender stereotype, right? I'm like, just give me the most ripped, beautiful guy. He doesn't have to talk, and you're like, I want someone with personality. <laughs> well, it's great. You just don't like the Ryan Gosling one. You want, to, you want. To, you want to. But, but to be honest, I mean, the the Brad Pitt one doesn't have to talk, as far as I'm concerned. He just has to has to be pretty. You throw out those numbers all out of whack. If you were involved in any of these surveys, I don't. They'd be I so don't. Skewered. I'm the outlier, <laughs> yes. which is perfectly in line with the whole concept of averages and bell curves and normal distributions. I just don't fall under the majority of people. I'm the outlier. All right. You can tell who has the PhD on the show. Dr. Jana, <laughs> what do we have next week on The Science of Sex? We have a new study that found that the brains of highly promiscuous men process romantic information differently than the brains of highly monogamous men. And we'll discuss this with one of the researchers in that study, Lisa Don Hamilton. All right, I'm going to go look for a sex robot. We'll see you back here. See you next week. <laughs> the Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, follow them on Science of Sex Podcast or on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast. This has been The Science of Sex.